Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead. Take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, kinfolk? Welcome to the number one college football show. I am your host, RJ Young. Thank you for watching on the Fox Sports app, YouTube, or listening wherever you get your podcast. Today, we got to talk about Notre Dame losing Tommy Reese to Alabama, or more importantly, Alabama hiring Tommy Reese away from Notre Dame. Kevin Steele also joining the Tuscaloosa train, and we got to talk about what is going on in Iowa football, particularly on the offensive side of the ball that has us all talking about, well, Afference, both of them, as it turns out. But first, you'll know that this week we're leading to Sunday. It is Super Bowl Sunday, which is a very, very big deal at work because, as you might well know, the game is going to be on Fox. So a lot of what we have been doing at Fox has been geared around the Super Bowl. And it is a historic Super Bowl. It's always a holiday, but it's particularly interesting and worthwhile to point out that it is also a black holiday because this is Black History Month and there is history going to be made in the Super Bowl related to black quarterbacks. So this is also me just kind of putting down the wall for you in a second here. I came into this as a writer. I think that I'm good at speaking out loud because I'm really good at putting down my thoughts, right? And then I can tell you, what I think. And frankly, I sit in front of you with a microphone and or on whatever screen you're watching because that's where the people are. Right. But in so doing, I read a ton and I was made aware of just what it meant for a black man to play quarterback in the NFL at a very, very early age. My father's first reveal to me was Randall Cunningham, the ultimate weapon and just what that meant. And then understanding why it was that Randall Cunningham was talking about in a way that, frankly, others were not, say like Brett Favre, for instance. And I say that to lead you into this. Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts are going to be the first pair of starting quarterbacks who were black to start in the Super Bowl. This is a game they've been playing for 57 years, and pro football has been around for over 100. But the journey to this moment has been arduous, and it has been long, and it is worth discussing. So what I'm going to lay out for you first are some facts. Facts. No opinion. I will let you know when I get to my opinion on this. But I need you to know these facts to underscore just how important Sunday will be for me, for black folks, and for the sport that is pro football, the National Football League. So it's not just that Patrick Mahomes is the youngest player ever to win NFL MVP or Super Bowl or Super Bowl MVP. He was 24 when he did that. It's that he is a black quarterback that did that, and it does matter because they weren't always black quarterbacks. Lamar Jackson is also one of just two players ever to win unanimous MVP honors. He did this 
and only his second year in the league. The only other guy to do that is Tom Brady. He did this in 2010. Year 10 for him in the league. It's a very big deal. But even as Lamar Jackson was going through the NFL draft process, we had really good NFL evaluators, namely Bill Polian, saying, I don't think he should be playing quarterback. The Ravens had to trade up to go get him in the first round, and he's turned out to be that dude. Patrick Mahomes famously fell in that 2017 draft, and Andy Reid said, no, nah, I think I see something there, and he went to go get him. But Andy Reid was also the first person to identify that not just that Donovan McDab was good, but that Mike Vick could come out of prison and still hit you for six tutties and 300 yards through the air as a starting quarterback in the NFL. Now, before Lamar Jackson, before Patrick Mahomes, and certainly before me, Doug Williams, Randall Cunningham, Steve McNair, Donovan McNabb, Mike Vick, those are the guys. But Warren Moon is the only black quarterback ever to make it into the Pro Football Hall of Fame. He did that in 2006. as my senior year of high school. He's still the only black quarterback in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. A little bit more about him in a minute, but James Jack Harris was the first black quarterback to start a season opener in the NFL. That's 1969. That's 15 years after the Supreme Court overturned Brown v. Board of Education, which is, you know, separate but equal. And 50 years, you know, after the NFL was founded and a year before the NFL and AFL merger. So 50 years after that, after 1969, we get, you know, those four out of eight teams in the NFL playoffs featuring a black starting quarterback, which was a pivotal year. You've heard many people in the know explain that 2019 was the year of the black quarterback because there were so many and they were all so very good. Like I can get to perhaps number six on the list before I start talking about Dak Prescott and Dak Prescott legitimately is a great NFL quarterback. But between 1933 and 1945, there were no black players in the NFL. You might call it a ban. You might call it a color barrier, whatever you want to call it. They did not employ black folks to play football in the National Football League from 1931 to 1945. Before that, we got to go back to 1927 when Duke Slater, whose name is on the field at Iowa, was the last black player to play in the NFL, right? And before that, the first black quarterback and, frankly, black football player of note in the National Football League is Fritz Pollard. But we don't talk about him as being a quarterback, A, because he was inducted into the Hall of Fame as a running back, but because the game is just different. And it's been different basically since World War II. And then you got to take a leap forward before you get to Willie Thrower, in October 8th, 1953, coming in relief of George Blanda as Chicago Bears quarterback, as being the first black quarterback to play in what we know as the modern era of professional football. Uh, Willie Throw was also an outstanding player out of Pennsylvania. He had offers from everybody until they found out he was black. Georgia, Miami, all turned him down when they found out he was black. Only Michigan State kept their word about offering a scholarship. And I'll never forget this because... I read this note and coach at the time who preceded Duffy Daughtry said, you know, I don't see a black quarterback uh, or uh, any sort of colored quarterback. I see somebody who can throw the ball 60 yards through the air, which is 59 yards harder, uh, thr farther than anybody else can throw in this room, which I really love because to say that in 1952 on a national championship Michigan State team is a very big deal. And it also underscores what I'm going to repeat to you, which is in each one of these instances, it has taken usually a white man to go to bat for a black man just to get an opportunity. That's been true in my life. It's certainly true 
in the lives of these quarterbacks that I'm going to talk with you about. But Willie Throw is the first one of those guys that we had to mention and talk about. But also, just since we're in college for a second here, I want to add that Wisconsin had its first black quarterback in the Big Ten uh, and was the first to field a black quarterback in the Big Ten in 1956. His name is Sidney Williams Jr. You also had Sandy Stevenson, who played quarterback at Minnesota, led them to a Rose Bowl berth and a national championship in 1960. Jimmy Ray II famously led perhaps the first integrated team to win a predominantly white institution, black college or black, excuse me, predominantly white institution national championship with a black quarterback. And I mentioned that because Jimmy Ray never got an opportunity to play quarterback in the NFL, even as he was outstanding at Michigan state. You also got to keep going and look at Chuck Ely, who I've spoken about on this show, who I wrote about at Fox sports, who finished his entire career, three years at Toledo undefeated, and only last year got inducted into the College Football Hall of Fame. He never got an opportunity to play quarterback in the NFL. He had to go to the CFL like many other black quarterbacks, and frankly, other quarterbacks, to get an opportunity to play the position that he'd been playing for most of his life. The SEC didn't field a black quarterback until 1972 when Tennessee tapped, I kid you not, Condridge Holloway. And that was five years after Nate Northerton integrated the SEC at Kentucky, and he paid a dear price for it. 1967. The first black quarterback was not even selected in the number one overall until 2001. It was Mike Vick, and nobody could deny that Mike Vick was the moment. And to play Madden is to play with Mike Vick. That is how he became who he is to many of us. And there are so many guys that I would play against for which you just weren't allowed to pick Vick or the Falcons because he was that much of a cheat code in the game. So we get to the first black MVP, not long after that, Steve McNair, 2003. And then, of course, I mentioned, you know, just what the Hall of Fame has done. But Tony Dungy also has had so much to say about this. And he's felt so good at what iteration we've seen. Because Tony Dungy played quarterback at Minnesota. He was good. Team MVP there. When he got drafted, he didn't. Like The NFL draft came and went. He didn't go. He wanted to play quarterback. They said, we're not going to draft you at quarterback. He signed as an undrafted free agent with the Pittsburgh Steelers, played safety there. But he did see a guy named Joe Gilliam Jr. show up. And Joe Gilliam Jr. played quarterback at Tennessee State, followed Eldridge Dickey, who also was pretty doggone good at Tennessee State, whom I've written about at Fox Sports. And Joe Gilliam Jr. started ahead of Teddy, uh, Terry Bradshaw when he was at Pittsburgh, 1978. Went 4-1-1 and then got the hook from Chuck Knoll not because he was bad, but it's like Lincoln Riley pulling Spencer Rattler in 2021 for Caleb Williams. Terry Bradshaw was just the better guy for the moment, but it broke Joe Gilliam Jr. Even as he won two Super Bowls as a backup quarterback, he ended up pawning both of his Super Bowl rings and fell into drug addiction. He passed away about 20 years ago. It's not unlike the story of Marlon Briscoe, who became the first black quarterback to, you know, play for the Denver Broncos, right, along with the Buffalo Bills there for a little while, but never really got the opportunity to just keep the job and was moved back to wide receiver by Lou Saban, got traded to Miami where he was wide receiver on one side, Paul Warfield was the wide receiver on the other, and they won two Super Bowls with the Miami Dolphins, including that 72 undefeated team. But Marlon Briscoe fell into a deep depression, picked up a drug addiction, and also ended up pawning both of his Super Bowl rings. These stories are terribly important. And this is where we get to my opinion. I'm not telling you 
these tragic stories and heaping on this trauma for the sake of the struggle, because Lord knows that I know all too well about the struggle. Uh, I wrote a book that is about the Tulsa race massacre because these things matter so much to me. I realized that a lot of my appeal in this space and frankly to anybody that speaks to me is my passion for things and how emotional I can sometimes be about what I believe and why I believe it. It kind of shrouds, I think sometimes uh, I went to school for this stuff, you know, to, to be an English professor, to teach writing, to teach literature and history. But that also spurs from a moment in which my grandmother was my biggest champion growing up. My grandmother is civil rights royalty. She sued the state of Mississippi for voting rights reapportionment, and she won, and she also paid a dear price for it. She was blackballed out of her business, a black woman who owned her own beauty salon. Nobody wanted to patronize her because they feared what might happen to them if they supported my grandmother, who just stood up for black folks in their right to vote. That is the struggle. That is trauma. I say that to tell you it's important that we recognize these moments when they happen and that we find joy in them. Like that's what's so cool about this moment that is going to happen on Sunday. Because when Doug Williams became the first black quarterback to win a Super Bowl in 1987, it was a marked achievement. It's on par with Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier. It's that big a deal. And another white man had to say, no, nah, I, need, I need Doug to have this. Matter of fact, Joe Gibbs was a running backs coach at Tampa when Doug Williams was first selected by the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to be quarterback the first round. Didn't really get the job, but he was getting berated by his quarterback's coach. Just up and down. MF this, MF that. Joe Gibbs would sprint down the sideline, tell his quarterback's coach, if you yell at him again, I'm going to fight you because he's a rookie and he's learning like everybody else. Stop yelling at him. Years later, my man, Doug Williams, even went to the USFL to play for the Oklahoma Outlaws, which were once in Tulsa, Oklahoma, eventually moved out of Arizona and so forth. So on. came back to play for the Washington football team when Joe Gibbs was head coach. Now, at the time, Jay Schroeder was the guy, and he was pretty much cemented as the guy, and Doug Williams wanted to be his starting quarterback, and he was getting ready to get traded to what was then the Oakland Raiders. And Joe had made the trade, and he told Doug that he was going to go, and at the 11th hour, he changed his mind. And he was smiling about it. Doug Williams was not happy about it. He's a Grambling State legend, all right? He finished fourth in the Heisman Trophy uh, voting in 1978, okay? He wanted to be a starting quarterback, and he'd earned that. So going into the 86 playoffs, Joe Gibbs made a move. He just decided that Jay Schroeder wasn't good enough for them to go where they wanted to go and that he needed to throw Doug Williams into the fire. And they rode Doug Williams through to the 1987 Super Bowl where he put together one of the greatest performances in a single quarter ever by anybody. He had 300 yards passing and four TDs in second quarter in a 42-10 to 10 destruction of John Elway's Denver Broncos. He ended that game with 340 yards through the air, four TDs and a pick. Outstanding. And that in and of itself put to bed whether or not a black man could lead a team to a championship because he'd just done it. And for him to come out of an HBCU was even bigger. Now, he has since become an outstanding coach in his own right at Grambling and went to go work for the Washington football team as a senior advisor and scout. But what he will be forever is that moment. And that happened when I was born. 
I wasn't around for it. I was born in 87. That game was played in January of 87. And now, 36 years later, I'm doing this job as a full-grown adult. And we are still witnessing Black history in Black History Month. And each time that it happens, I make a point to celebrate it because this is what the struggle is about. It's for Patrick Mahomes and Jalen Hurts being able to play against each other. And for me to know that, one, I ain't had a team in the Super Bowl since, you know, the late 90s and hadn't had a team make a championship game, Dallas Cowboys, in the 21st century. So I can't lose either way, but I sincerely am going to win on Sunday. And we're going to win on Sunday because this is yet another milestone that we get to overcome that is right on time, quite honestly. I mean, Beyonce became the most decorated Grammy Award winner of all time last Sunday. Viola Davis finished her EGOT. There are only 18 people in history who have won an Emmy, a Grammy, an Oscar, and a Tony, and she got there on Sunday. Yours truly is up against her for the best book in the nonfiction literary category by the NAACP Image Awards, and I'm not going to be mad if I lose to the GOAT, okay? We're also at a moment where we're going to see the first black woman be an assistant coach in a Super Bowl. Autumn Lockwood is a strength and conditioning coach for the Philadelphia Eagles and Tulsa native, Booker T. Washington alumna, Nicole Lynn represents Jalen Hurts, which means she is the first black woman to represent a starting quarterback in the Super Bowl. Shout out to her husband, Gabe, for I stayed in the same apartment complex, went to school, get my master's with him as she was in law school in Norman at the same time. And it's just been so much fun to see their journey together and Homegirl is running Clutch Sports' football operation now. These moments don't happen as often as I would want them to. They certainly don't happen in, well, let's call it an avenue in which I operate, which is football. So when they do happen and we get first, I'm going to acknowledge it. I hope you will too. But we should also acknowledge it's going to be so much fun to see two Big 12 quarterbacks in the Super Bowl, knowing that the Big 12 will have its second Super Bowl, right? Four years. All because, yeah, a couple of black quarterbacks earned their way to that spot. All right. That is my thing about black quarterbacks in the NFL, particularly in the Super Bowl. And I can't wait to see what happens on Sunday. But now, I want to pivot back to why we're usually here. It's college football. And we had some moving and shaking last week when Alabama, you know, had a vacancy at offensive and defensive coordinator, for which on this show we were asking, what's Nick Saban going to do? Is he going to go inside or is he going to go outside of, you know, his family? And nobody has a deeper bench in college football than Nick Saban, right? Now, I thought it was interesting that he actually did both. <laughs> so to start with, the question for me and I think for you was who's going to be the offensive coordinator because, A, you care most about the offensive coordinator. I care most about the offensive coordinator. And you got a real quarterback competition coming up with Bryce Young headed to the NFL. So I thought that perhaps whoever Nick Saban hires as offensive coordinator was also going to tip his hand as to who he thought was going to be the starting quarterback for the Tide in 2023. You're down to what I think is going to be Jalen Milrow versus Ty Simpson, two totally different passers uh, and totally different skill sets. Jalen did not look great 
against Texas A&M when he had to start that game with Bryce Young being out injured, but he's also got a different skill set that demands a different kind of offense than the one that Bill O'Brien was running with Bryce Young. So when Notre Dame found out Tommy Reese was going to be headed to Alabama, they probably felt some kind of way about it, but I certainly was like, oh, let me let me go look at this. Because my first thought wasn't that it was a bad hire. I actually liked the hire the more I looked at it. But then I came to look at what it was that perhaps that Nick Saban liked about Tommy Reese. Now, I'm going to get into the X's and O's of that for a second, but producer Tyler is a Notre Dame grad, a proud Notre Dame alumnus, and we talk a bunch about Marcus Freeman, Notre Dame, and what they're going to be on this show. He points out to me that, this is not out of left field that Tommy Reese and Nick Saban had known each other as coaches for a number of years now. And that Tommy had thought about becoming quarterback's coach at Alabama before Brian Kelly elevated him to offense coordinator at Notre Dame. So there was a connection there, but also it's a Notre Dame guy in, in ways that frankly are fascinating because Tommy played quarterback there was old enough to have been a quarterback when Notre Dame played against Alabama and Nick Saban for a national championship that was lopsided, but you get my point there. And he's seen him grow into the 30-year-old that can lead an Alabama offense. But he also has managed to keep his old-school approach to college football, which I think Nick Saban really loved and wants to get back to. Because those that have been watching Notre Dame for some time know that this man has made it work with totally different skill sets. Ian Book is a mobile quarterback. As a matter of fact, it's a style of play that I would equate with what was once called black quarterback. And now it's just the way you got to play quarterback. There is no such thing as a pocket passer anymore because everybody's got to be able to move and make it happen on the go. Ian Book could do that. But when they were forced to have someone else different, say Jack Cohn, he could adapt to that too and put the ball into Kyron Williams' belly. You always knew he had Michael Mayer and you know, tight ends in Notre Dame are synonymous as offensive linemen in Notre Dame. And he went to work with that guy. So when you thought you were going to have Tyler Buckner, who was much more in the Ian Book category of mobile quarterback, he gets hurt. You got to go to Drew Pine, who's much more in the Jack Cohn style of quarterback, where he's just going to sit back there, hand the ball off and or try to throw guys open on play action pass. Tommy's been able to build offenses around all of that because he's committed to tight ends as being a part of his personnel. They do get under center and they want to run the football. Sounds like a Nick Saban guy if ever there was a Nick Saban guy. Now, Saban also got to the front of modern evolution when we're talking about passing attacks because he had to. He wanted to play murder ball and, and did from about 2007 to about 2011. But with Lane Kiffin came a wide open offense. And then after Johnny Manziel made them look foolish in that really awesome 2012 year, he decided, fine, if that's what y'all want football to be, we'll go put up 50 on everybody we see too. And that was the offense, right? Blake Sims was airing it out. Jalen Hurts sort of kind of did that. Tua Tagovailoa brought that on. Mac Jones get aired out. Of course, Bryce Young airs it out. And now you're getting back to perhaps the offense didn't operate as efficiently as it should have in 2022, by Alabama standards at least. They weren't really great at running the football, and their identity was built around the quarterback and what he could do. Saban does not want to be one-dimensional in any aspect of what he's doing. With a guy like Tommy Reese, you're going to get a dude that wants to keep his old school principles, but can adapt the offense to the player and personnel that he has at his disposal. And I think that part is the reason that he got the job, even at age 30. You don't have to worry about what the offense is going to be like. You just know that you're going to recruit well and you're going to meld it to what you have. I also think that it's interesting to point out that 
Tommy Reese took this job as an offensive coordinator at Alabama and did not take that job as an offensive coordinator at LSU. Now, a couple of reasons that I think that is important to point out. A, he became the man at Notre Dame in a way that he wasn't the man when Brian Kelly was the head coach at Notre Dame because Brian Kelly's an offensive-minded guy. You're going to run what he tells you to run. Marcus Freeman was able to keep Tommy Reese in part by saying, no, nah, man, I'm going to leave you alone. What you want to do is what you want to do. That's why I want you to be the guy running the offense. But when the GOAT calls you, you know, you got to go. As a matter of fact, good Notre Dame fans, great Notre Dame fans, understand, not mad in the least. You understand that he, that man is going to go down to Tuscaloosa and do great things. What I also find interesting about this is how Nick Saban put himself in great position for the future by hiring a 30-year-old offensive coordinator. That is five years younger than I am today, and I skew toward the young. And then on the defensive side, not only did he go get a vet, he went to go get a 39-year coaching vet in Kevin Steele. Now, Steele is going to enter his third stint at Alabama with Nick Saban. He was a part of that inaugural staff in 2007. He came back for a year as an assistant in 2014, and now he's back as D.C. But I also think this is a signal that Nick Saban wants control of the defense. He wants his hands on it again because Nick Saban is a defensive backs coach before he is anything else, and he's a defense coordinator before he's any other kind of coordinator. I think Kevin Steele understands this, and that's one of the reasons that their relationship is going to work. Saban went to go get a guy that he does not have to indoctrinate in the way that he's going to have to indoctrinate Tommy Reese. You're going to do things the way Alabama does. The process is in place for Kevin Steele. He gets it. He understands. He's in his 60s. Okay, he came there to be a coordinator and assistant to Nick Saban, perhaps a good GA. But it also underscores just what was wrong with the defense or what Nick Saban thought was wrong with the defense in 2022. They weren't as disciplined as they should have been. They were one of the worst penalized teams in all of football. Some uncharacteristic mistakes that, frankly, get down to, are you paying attention to the details and Nick Saban is nothing if not the guy who pays attention to the details. He's the kind of dude that's going to fix your toe point if it is not correct. I think Kevin Steele understands that and is going to be a greater extension of who Nick Saban already is as he goes into his 70s coaching at Alabama. I also thought it was interesting that, you know, you hire Kevin Steele away from Miami, which we'll touch on here in just a second. But Kevin Steele was the defensive coordinator at Auburn from 2016 to 2020. And before Brian Harson got the job, all any Auburn fan wanted was for Kevin Steele to be their head coach, and they were loud about it. Wanted Gus Malzahn pushed out so they could elevate Kevin Steele. So in part, I like to think that Nick Saban hired Kevin Steele to troll Auburn fans, which is, I just think, funny. But it's also worth pointing out that Kevin Steele is pretty damn good at keeping the lid on a defense, even if he's going to give up a ton of yards. I'll point out 2019 versus LSU. They only lost that game 23-20, to 20, even as LSU put up over 500 yards of offense. Joe Burrow went for 321 in that game. Clyde Edwards-Alaire had a 100-yard rushing performance, and Jamar Chase also had a 100-yard receiving performance. But with Derrick Brown and that 3-1-7 defense they put out there, Kevin Steele, they were able to mostly keep that prolific offense in check. And remember, that offense averaged 48 a game. They only scored 23 against Kevin Steele and Auburn. If that's what you're going to do at Alabama – it's going to be really tough to beat you defensively, and you're going to give the offense more time to find its feet underneath Tommy Reese because no matter what happens in 2023, he will have a first-year starter, and that guy's going to need to get it together pretty quickly, especially with Texas going to Alabama to start the season. Very interested to see how that goes. Now, 
There's also the question of what this means for Notre Dame and its offensive coordinator position. I've been made to understand producer Tyler and Notre Dame fans uh, by producer Tyler. I don't, I don't want to speak to Tyler on this part, but Notre Dame fans are in on Brian Johnson, which is okay. That's fine. That's cool. Uh, also know that Byron Leftwich at least has talked to Marcus Freeman. If you can get Byron Leftwich, by all means, go get Byron Leftwich, but let's not, not depend on that. However, I've told producer Tyler, if Byron Leftwich gets the offensive coordinator job at Notre Dame, we're going to throw a party because I'm here for that. I love Byron Leftwich since his days at Marshall. I've really loved his ascent as a coach and coordinator. I know it didn't go well in the GOATs last year at Tampa, but he's an out- outstanding offensive mind and frankly was a candidate that turned down the job for Jacksonville before Doug Peterson became that guy. But you have options if you are Marcus Freeman because it is Notre Dame. And this is an opportunity for you to earn your $5 million annually even as this is not a great look for Notre Dame, all right? Like that's, if you're going to lose somebody, lose to Alabama, but still to lose a favorite son, a quarterback, a quarterback's coach, an offensive coordinator, a guy that's basically spent a third of his life at the university, that's going to be tough to bounce back from. There's a lot that goes into losing a guy like Tommy Reese that is just institutional. And one of the reasons why I think he was so valued at Notre Dame, but I think they're going to be okay. Uh, Sam Hartman has made no indication. Matter of fact, posting videos of himself or uh, photos of himself in the weight room at Notre Dame going, no, nah, I'm here. I understand because I was positing this. There's nothing to stop Sam Hartman from transferring to Tuscaloosa because he's a grad transfer and you could just do that. But it seems like he wants to be at Notre Dame, if not for, you know, just this year, just this year, right? And he was, is one of the prolific, most, yes, one of the most prolific passers in ACC history coming out of Wake Forest and Wake Forest ain't, ain't, ain't nobody in comparison to Notre Dame. So you ought to be pretty damn good. I'm excited to see who he throws to. I don't know who that's going to be. I, I honestly don't think he does either with Michael Mayer going to the NFL and Lindsby retiring. You're just going to have to hope that guys like Audrey Estime can carry the load for you until you find out who your guys are on the outside and up the middle. I also think that it's interesting to point out that Miami is in a very interesting space. Now, earlier on Tuesday, it was reported Lance Gidry was hired as the defensive coordinator at Miami. He was the defensive coordinator at Marshall when Marshall had Notre Dame put the money in the bag in 2022. He was going to become the new defensive coordinator at Tulane, and he has since taken the job at Miami because, you know, Tulane, Miami, ACC versus the American, that's not a hard decision. I don't think anybody gets to hold a grudge about a guy that really didn't coach for very long, if at all, at Tulane. Now, I also think that it is important to point out that Mario Cristobal has not had the year one that many folks thought he would have. It's one of the things that I'm often pointing out as we talk about college football in the offseason is when we try to do things rationally or game this thing out logistically and rationally, it almost never goes that way. So, We all thought that Mario Cristobal was going to be great in year one. It wasn't very good. They put the money in the bag against Middle Tennessee. They ended up having to fire Josh Gaddis one year after he won the Broyles Award and help Michigan win a Big Ten championship for the first time since they made divisions in the Big Ten and reached the college football playoff. Then you lose Kevin Steele to Alabama. And in between there, Cormani McClain flipped his commitment from Miami to Colorado and Jaden Rashada with his commitment to Florida before ending up at Arizona State. It's just not it's just not what you draw up if you're a Miami fan, especially knowing that they don't lack the funds to do the things that they want to do. As a matter of fact, they've been really, really loud 
about the kind of money that they're not just investing into the program and facilities, but into their name, image, and likeness initiatives. And to know that you still had these sorts of things that happen, both at the coaching staff level and at the player level, it's just not, it's hard to feel good about that if you're a Miami Hurricane, except to say Mario Cristobal remains a pretty damn good recruiter, is also one of those guys that's on that saving tree and put together a winner at Oregon. I think he can put together a winner at Miami. It's just not going the way that we thought it would go one year into his stint. I'm really anxious to see what the program looks like at the end of next year because he will have turned over both of his assistants at a coordinator, except his name is not Nick Saban, for which that is the only guy that where it seems like you can do that and win. I guess Dabo Sweeney would have an argument with that too with Wes Goodwin and even Brandon Streeter because they ended up winning a ton of games in 2022, and he still needed to fire the offensive coordinator to bring in a guy like Garrett Riley. So the bar is the bar. And you're in the ACC if you're Miami, so that means Clemson and then Florida State is charging, and somebody's got to play Notre Dame at some point in their season. So I'm interested, as you are, to find out what Miami is about, but I'm just laying out for you the facts. The facts aren't necessarily that great, but who knows, man? Miami might end up being Texas Christian, which is a thing we're going to say for a very long time because Texas Christian was 5-7, and seven ends up making it to the college football playoff off of a loss in the Big 12 championship, which reminds me, I've written a column about black quarterbacks. You can go and check out on foxsports.com. And I've also written 2,500 words about the state of the Big 12, which you can go read on foxsports.com. And we will talk about here on the number one college football show in some depth next week because it's a, it's a very fun topic. 14 teams, 11 of them have made New Year's six games in the college football playoff era. And everybody, but everybody, hates OU and Texas still being in this conference. And yet nobody can figure out how to get them out of there earlier because, well, the money has not been decided and the money talks. All right. Speaking of the money talks, let's talk about Brian Ferentz, Iowa, and the contract that we were all put on game with on Monday afternoon. So the landscape on this one is pretty clear. Iowa's football team managed to win seven games and was they're at the end competing for a spot in the Big Ten Championship, basically without an offense and basically without a quarterback, which is wild. On the one hand, Phil Parker needs to be the highest paid coordinator in all of football, defense coordinator at Iowa, because for the last like five years, his defense has been elite and awesome. They have a Butkus Award winner last year. My goodness. Riley Moss, one of the better cornerbacks, uh, defensive backs, I should say in all of football, right? And that's before many people will tell you that Cooper DeJean, excuse me, Cooper DeJean, would be their pick for the best DB of that group in 2022. But it also meant that everybody's pointing at Kurt Ferentz's kid, Brian Ferentz, and what his offense was incapable of doing, moving the football and scoring points. So we were all kind of taken aback when the University of Iowa football program told us all that they had amended Brian Ferentz's contract. So the amendments for Brian Ferentz go like this. It is incentive-based now in 2023. He was making 900 grand a year. Now he's making 850 grand a year. But if the Hawkeyes score 25 points or more and win seven games in 2023, he'll get a bonus of $112,500. 
for averaging 25 points per game and winning seven. Okay, so seven is... Iowa ought to win seven football games. Let's put it, put it there. Iowa has been consistently one of the better Big Ten teams in the sport that we just don't talk about, right? I think Minnesota also is in this conversation. They're just good. But given the right offense, they could be great, all right? And we're going to talk about why that is and who that could be that leads them there here in a second. But I need to underscore what 25 points per game means in college football. First, know that Nick Saban feels comfortable putting the offense in the hands of a 30-year-old but needs the defense to be in the hands of a 60-year-old, which is to say that offense is easier to coach. I would be an offensive coordinator. I was a quarterback. I don't want to call defense because I need big, fast, scary dudes on defense that also have to react to what the offense is doing every single snap. Offense, I get to design what I want to do. And I get to be cool, like Kyle Shanahan, all right? Now, there were, last year, 85 teams that averaged 25 points or more a game out of 131. The Hawkeyes averaged, I can't believe this, 17.69 points per game in 2022. They ranked 123rd out of 131 teams in scoring offense. I dare you to find a team that wins seven games with an offense that is so putrid that it ranks eighth from the bottom. Okay, so there's that. Now add to this that it was at midseason when most Hawkeye fans were like, get Brian Ferentz out of here. Get him out of the booth. Hand the play calling privileges to somebody else. Kurt, you got to let your guy go. I know he's your son, but you got to let him go. And Kurt Ferentz was not going to do that. And has telegraphed as much by saying, not only is he coming back, we have, you know, heard you and we're going to make this incentive base to a degree. It also feels like, yeah, you're just going to be stuck with Brian Ferentz for some time if you are an Iowa Hawkeye fan. Okay, so there's also the point to add here that is a cool detail coming from Richard Johnson at SI that an Iowa spokesperson tells uh, SI that the points per game benchmark includes any point scored. And remember, Iowa scored six defensive touchdowns and two safeties last season. So that's going to count toward the tally for the offense when it comes to Brian Ferentz's, <laughs> when it comes to Brian Ferentz's 25 points per game tally. Again, my thought on this was I would hope that if my father was my boss, that I would get this kind of, you know, we'll, we'll wait on it. We'll give you some time. Well, you need to get better, but we give it some time. We won't fire you outright. If you're an Iowa fan, though, this is probably wanting to make you pull your hair out. And that's where I want to go with this. I understand. I get it. You are an Iowa Hawkeye. You are very proud of your tradition. You remember Hayden Fry and that 83 staff that was amazing. You have great affinity for Bob Stoops. You can look up and see some great players in the NFL that played Iowa football. You get to claim Big E, which is one of the coolest things in the world because Big E is an amazing WWE superstar. He played Iowa football, even played for Ferentz. But as it stands today, this is what you have, and this is what you're going to have, at least in 2023. You have been outstanding defensively, and you have been thrilled at times with how your defense has played. 
and you have continued to scratch out your eyes when you see Alex Padilla throw a pick or Spencer Peters throw a pick or you see that Brian Ferentz's offense is, shall we say, not innovative. I am going to tell you that, hey, man, you're not going to get any smoke from me. I know what you got to work with. I understand that it's your team, and there's nothing you can do about that. I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. I keep saying that, right? I keep saying that because sometimes I feel it's a pyramid scheme. Sometimes I feel like, no, 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 no. This only works if I get more people involved that share my angst and share my emotional anxiety and my anger. When Dak Prescott can go and finish the GOAT's career with a loss, a resounding loss on what is essentially Monday Night Football, but can't beat the dog off hooding Niners to save his life in a divisional round. Just, just can't happen. Okay? I get it. I am, however, very interested to see if Cade McNamara can save us both. Cade McNamara wasn't amazing at Michigan, but he was good enough for the offense to function and the offense to function well enough to win a Big Ten championship, to beat Ohio State, and to make the college football playoff. He also is a fiery competitor. He is the guy who almost immediately after letting everybody know that he was grad transferring to Iowa said, please keep calling it the worst offense in the world. As if we were somehow saying something that wasn't factual. As if we were somehow saying something that isn't true. Now, Cade, if you are the dude to go and flip it, flip it. I'm here for it. I would love to see Cade McNamara make Iowa great again. I would love to see Cade McNamara be the dude who is basically taking your slogan off of a billboard for whomever's running for political offense and putting that on his forehead because he also speaks your language. He is hard-nosed. He wants to bloody everybody else's face. He wants his own face bloody. He wants to make it into a fist fight. And my goodness, if Iowa doesn't want to make everything into a fist fight, I don't know what college football is. I think that that dude is good enough to complete the passes that others could not and good enough to get them in plays and out of plays to make the offense just not look bad. Because if Cade McNamara is just above average, we're talking about a nine-win team, maybe a team that plays in the Big Ten championship game, and maybe a guy that can get Iowa over the hump that, frankly, Michigan couldn't get over the hump until he was their quarterback. So that is where your faith should go, and that is where my faith is going for 2023 Iowa offense. It ain't Brian Ferentz's contract, which I feel like is going to, we're going to talk about it because we got to talk about it, but it is going to Cade McNamara, who knows how to win, is a winner and fits your culture. That's a very good place to be, especially knowing that Phil Parker's still your defensive coordinator. So it's going to be okay, I think. But if you are mad, be mad. Send me all your angry tweets about what the offense is doing and know that I am receiving them and I'm nodding along, okay? That's something I rarely get to say out loud. I feel you. I understand you. I'm not going to tell you to calm down. I'm going to tell you to vent your anger in my direction because venting in that football team just ain't going to work. Just ain't going to work. They're going to do what they're going to do. Ask Jerry Jones. All right. That is going to do it for this episode of the number one college football show. My thanks as always to our lead producer, Tyler Wojak, our senior producer, Catherine Donnelly, our director, Kyle Holly, Our production assistant is Kiara Santana. Our social media maven is Javion Duncan. Our leads of screening are Jack Coakley and Torin Westfall. I'm the host, RJ. We will see y'all next week. Deuces. <laughs>